Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And hey, it's Halloween season. Today's episode is kind of uh, Halloween-y. Uh, we also want to remind you to be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That is uh, the main site. That's where you'll find all of the podcasts, all the videos, various blog posts. And we have a few interesting things going on this month. Monster Science, uh, the video series uh, that I've been doing in the past here, is coming back these last two weeks of October. Four new episodes with the sort of VHS-laden um, horror cinema-themed explorations of science. All right, so let's get rolling with this. I want to kick off by just asking you just a very basic question here, Joe. Do you see yourself, as you uh, eventually enter old age, do you see yourself drinking the blood of the young in order to sustain your natural life? Hmm. Now, are we talking about the blood of the young human or the blood of any young animal? I mean, I assume the young human. I mean, that's where the vitality is. That's where the human life force is. If I'm going to keep my own human life force going, that's the place to go, right? Uh, it could be, but then again, if we follow our, our magical intuitions and the history of our practices, I think animal blood rituals have been fairly common in human history, right? Yeah, and certainly not only uh, animal blood rites, but even uh, into early pseudoscientific ideas of, of taking elements from uh, particularly virile-seeming uh, specimens and, and using those tissues in our own body. You know, I think I would feel rude drinking the blood of young humans, but what I might do is a kind of Mithraic ritual where I would get into some contraption and have a bull on a grate above me and uh-huh. then just bathe in its showering blood as it is butchered. Okay. Well, yeah, that, that works that way. It's not like the direct bathing or the direct consumption of the blood. There's a, there's a buffer, a mythic buffer zone there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you get all of the, uh, all of the wonderful attributes of the bull, right? The strength, the power, the virility. Mm-hmm. It's good stuff. Yeah, or potentially just like a bull testes young person blood smoothie. Uh, that that might end up being my like, vampiric morning ritual when I'm a, an old person. Now, Robert, obviously you brought this up for a reason. Are, are you thinking about drinking blood anytime soon? Well, I can't help but think about it a little bit, just based on some of our uh, the research we, we've been doing here, uh, some, some mythic research, some historical research, and most importantly, some modern scientific research into the advantages of taking another individual's blood into your own body. That, that sounds like you're hedging there. <laughs> no, so, so not necessarily always just drinking blood, but, but at least some way taking blood, taking someone's blood. Yeah, I mean, because certainly there are various ways of, uh, of, of taking another individual's blood and, and gaining some sort of life essence from it, right? Probably the most notable mythological folkloric example of this, uh, if not actual historical fact, is uh, that of Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory. Right, the blood countess. Yes. Right, so she was one, uh, according to the historical record, I mean, we can never really know, she was apparently one of the most prolific serial killers in human history. Yes. I mean, we're talking like 650 victims during her reign, and the charges leveled against her were pretty out there, right? I mean, and that's one of the problems looking back at it. Uh, to what extent are these uh, these charges embellished? To what extent are they outright slander, right? Right. But at least what she was charged with was the murder of hundreds of, I think it was mostly young girls, right? Yes. Yeah, there were charges that, that young virgin girls were her favorite victim. Yeah, yeah and the story goes that uh, Countess Bathory feared aging, that she didn't want to become old and, and shriveled and and see her youth evaporate before her eyes. And she got a pretty interesting idea in her head. What if she could maintain her youth with the blood of the young? Uh, again, we, we don't know to what extent any, any of this is history. A lot of it's probably just made up legend about her. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is pretty certain. I think, I think most historians think that she did really or was involved in the killing of lots of young girls, but you know, her motivations for it and whether she actually bathed in their blood or consumed their blood or anything like that, that I think that's a lot shakier. Yeah, I, you don't really see many, if any, historians say, yeah, I think she actually bathed in the blood of virgins. Uh, more likely, they tend to, to run the gamut between she was just a victim of conspiracy, uh, but was also a part of a rather murderous and awful family, to, yeah, she was 
a really awful ruler who probably got what was coming to her. So you can sort of pick and choose and, and decide where you're going to fall in there. But the, the idea, the, the, the myth of the thing, the, the folkloric idea of this evil, rich ruler, uh, bathing in a young person's blood in order to stay young, that continues to resonate. And, and of course, it also has various um, racist and sexist qualities to it as well. Right. You know, this idea She's of the femme fatale yeah. from this, you know, sort of out the outskirts of Europe. Yeah, Eastern European. She's exotic. She's dangerous. Uh, and, uh, of course, all she wants to do is, uh, is, is appear young. She's so vain and so hateful toward those who actually have beauty and youth that she would murder them and bathe in their blood. You know, there's a tangent about Elizabeth Bathory that I cannot resist. It's not really related. But I remember back when I was in high school coming across, uh, it was either a CD or a tape of a metal band called uh-huh. Bathory that I thought was the funniest CD cover I'd ever seen because the bad calligraphy on the name Bathory made it look like it said Bat-Lord. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great metal band? Bat-Lord sounds good, too. And also, you know, vampiric and all. So, uh, so I like it. Uh now, when we get into to mythology and folklore, of course, there are way too many examples of blood drinkers and vampiric creatures. There are far too many examples of, of blood rituals to even go into, right? They're just, it, it's a common trope throughout human history. Um, we even have, and we have so many examples even in our own culture. Uh, one that came to mind when we were talking the other day was a 1970s TV show called The Immortal. I'd never seen this. I only saw it because there was a brief time in the late 90s, uh, I think maybe the early 2000s where they were showing reruns on uh, the sci-fi channel. Mm-hmm. And it was one of these shows where it was like it was an ABC, uh, it was an ABC movie of the week and then a very brief television show that didn't, uh, take off. And it was kind of from the Incredible Hulk mold. Yeah. Uh, so you have this... Going from town to town. Yeah. Somebody's chasing him. There's like this overarching plot of, of these people who are after him. But then from in each town that he goes to, he, he has this ability to help people or there are new sub-villains to deal with. Also like the Incredible Hulk, he's got a power that's both a blessing and a curse. Yeah. Right. So his his whole deal in this show is that his blood... Uh, is essentially kind of magic, right? It's this wonderful, wonderful blood, and a, a transfusion of this blood will basically wipe out any of your illnesses, and it can allow you to live longer. So it's a it's 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 a longevity uh, drug in this man's veins. It's like a biological antivirus program. Yeah, and so of course uh, there's a particular rich old dude who wants nothing more than to just keep him uh, closed up in his mansion to himself so he can just have as much of his blood as he needs to keep going. To make him the Mad Max blood bag on the front of his car. Yeah, yeah, right there in the front of his limo. Uh, so, But of course the hero doesn't, doesn't dig that, so he escapes, he's on the run, and uh, you know, it's a, it's a very 1970s kind of Incredible Hulk uh, delivery, but it's kind of a cool idea and it definitely ties in with a lot of the, uh, the actual science we're going to discuss later in the episode. Well, there there are multiple ways that I think people would imagine blood could have a power to rejuvenate, to invigorate, to give you the strength of the young. And I think they sort of occur along a scale of magical thinking. Mm-hmm. Like on one hand, there's a much more straightforward, uh, I think, material kind of approach to it where you'd think, well, there, there's something about young people's blood that gives them their body strength. And so it must be nutritious in a way. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you can imagine people wanting to consume it with a, with a fairly secular mindset as long as they don't know much about modern medicine. Um, but then there's also the magical end where you start getting into magical associative thinking where uh, where properties of a thing can be absorbed by coming into contact with its essence. Yeah, and this you get into some of these uh, funeral cannibal rites where an individual will partake of the flesh of a loved one after they have died uh, in order to absorb part of them. Yeah. And then there's the whole... Um, realm of what James Frazier called homeopathic magic, where yeah. light cures like. So the thinking here would go uh, that the blood of the young must cure the old and turn back the clock because that's just, that's what it is. That's the the inherent nature of how um, how different properties interact with each other. Yeah, so throughout the history of using homeopathic magical medicine, the idea might be that you'd, you'd take a thing associated with another thing 
to cure that second thing. Yeah. So, you know, if you had problems with your hand, you might consume the paw of an animal or the hand of a person or something like that, you know, or problem if you had headaches, you might consume ground up skull right. or something like that. So, yeah, if you if your problem is aging, you can consume youth. And what is the essence of youth more than the juice of young people, young people's blood? And another influence I can also think of that might have made people uh, over the centuries want to imbibe the blood of the young in order to avoid aging or to restore vigor and vitality is the sort of bodily humor thinking. Mm. You know, the, you had the four temperaments that went along with the bodily humors theory. And in that traditional order of temperaments, the sanguine temperament, the one that's associated with blood, is the one that's like positive and excitable and high energy and playful. It's still there in our language. Like to be sanguine about something is to be optimistic or positive about it. So I don't know if that association within the body humors theory is uh, a symptom of this underlying association we have between blood and then youth and vigor and vitality, or if the association between blood and youth and vigor comes from the bodily humors theory. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting take. I hadn't thought about that. You know, another thing that comes to mind, at least for the modern era, is that since we, we've talked before about how we can't help but think of ourselves and think of reality in terms of whatever our technology is. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for a while, certainly in the, in the industrial age, we've, we've looked at the body, uh, as biomechanical. And mm-hmm. here we're having to deal with all our automobiles. And what, what do you have to do with your automobile? You have to take out the old oil, right? And get some new oil in there. Yeah. So maybe on a subliminal level, even, uh, a subconscious level, rather, we end up thinking, of, of ourselves as an automobile and like, well, maybe I'm just filled with all this old oil. And what if I could get that old oil out and get a, you know, a, 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 a transfusion of new oil? Yeah. Uh, so I, I could see where we might buy into the concept. Um, yeah. At a subconscious level, just based on our technology. And it's also, of course, easy to, to think of it just as pure metaphor, right? Because we're, we're, we're surrounded by, you know, largely youth-obsessed culture. Yeah. And you see plenty of examples of of middle-aged and older individuals who are just grasping after that youth, right? Maybe sometimes quite literally in the form of rich old men with very young uh, romantic partners. Now, I can't remember where I read this. I think it was in one of our sources. Maybe you can let me know. But it, there was a suggestion that the idea of grasping back after youth might also be a fairly recent thing in the history of humanity, because it's only recently that humans have begun to regularly live to old age in some parts of the world. I mean, more often there was high infant mortality, more people died in middle age or younger. uh, And now it's pretty common that if you have access to good, high quality medical care, you can usually live to a decently long age. Huh. Well, that's that's an interesting take on it there, too. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that is kind of uh, something we, we should loop in with the um, biomechanical body as a more modern view on uh, on vampiric diets. Now, before we really get into the topic, though, we probably just have to talk about the consumption of blood uh, as a food. Like, what does that mean? What does that entail? And it's uh, it's pretty interesting uh, to, to, to stop and study that, particularly when you look at animals that are obligate uh, sanguivores, that, that it feed exclusively on blood, like the vampire bat. Say that category again. Uh, obligate sanguivores. So that's, that's great. Blood only. They go, to the, they go to the restaurant, they need to see the blood only menu. Uh, they're not going to eat the, the salad, they're not going to eat the steak. It's just the blood. That's the, the corner that they've, they've painted themselves into evolutionarily. Well, from a layperson's point of view, it would seem like blood would be a perfectly nutritious thing. I mean, the conventional wisdom is that the blood is the life, right? Yeah, I mean, it's the life. It's the life blood. This is the stuff itself. This is like the pure essence. This is uh, like it's, humanity it's straight dope. Yeah, you'd think that's kind of our the, the magical mythic realm to it. But when you actually look at something like a vampire uh, bat, um, and you look at its consumption of blood, I mean, it's basically consuming protein and water. There's there's no fat for the bat to store away. So unlike their insect and fruit-eating kin, they can't hibernate. They can't migrate because they lack the fat stores. Instead, they have to feed every night, lapping up to 50% of their body weight in order to survive. Wow. And um, That sounds like a very difficult, limited diet. 
Yeah, yeah, and it and there are a lot of fascinating theories about how it occurred that they may have started out feeding on parasites that contain the blood, and then eventually uh, they they decided or decided eventually they evolved more in the direction of feeding exclusively and directly on the blood as opposed to the creatures that feed on blood. Oh, interesting! How an intermediary could come in there. Oh, uh, what was that story I was reading about a while back about there's a particular species of African jumping spider that yes. likes human blood, but not drinking it directly from humans. Right. right, it preys on mosquitoes that contain it. Yeah, so yeah. it's the same the same sort of situation where, yeah, eventually you just give up the middleman and right. you're just going straight for it the stuff. It might right? come straight to us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so that's one of the reasons that it's hard to imagine a human feeding exclusively on blood to get into, or even even a humanoid, uh, certainly a larger creature, uh, uh, just because of the, the energy levels required. But we know fully well that humans do sometimes consume blood, don't they? I mean, I I have seen a blood sausage, but I don't think I've ever eaten one. I don't know that I have either, unless... I mean, after I, I was reading about it, I thought, well, maybe I've had it on an airplane and didn't realize it, because <laughs> I've, like, I've flown some... Um, some, some, particularly some Asian airlines before where there's like some sort of a sausage meat that I couldn't identify. Hmm. And looking at pictures, maybe that was blood sausage. I don't know. But yeah, you see some version of blood sausage in a lot of different cultures. And, uh, including, I was, uh, I found this interesting, the red tofu found in some parts of, oh, of the, China. The blood tofu. The blood tofu, yeah. Yeah, this is made from like pig's blood or something. Yeah, so it's not, not really tofu. So any, uh, any vegetarians out there who see that on the menu, <laughs> you might, you know, ask a few questions about it before you order it. Uh, and then of course there are various, uh, blood festivals. There's a Nepalese, uh, yak blood festival in which they drink blood. There are various traditions, uh, throughout the world where blood is, is consumed directly as sort of a culinary ritual. And certainly in the American tradition, what everyone, the, the whole thing is to have a big rare steak, right? And certainly yeah. that is blood leaking out of that meat. You know, I've heard that all my life, but I think I've actually read recently that that is not true. Huh. That the, that a, the, like the meat you would buy packaged at a grocery store mm-hmm. is mostly drained of blood. There's really not going to be much blood in it. Uh, and that when you cut into a bloody steak, you know, like a nice rare steak and all that red liquid comes out, that's mostly just a mixture of water and then some other protein. I think it might have been myoglobin. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, maybe I'm thrown off here by vampire movies in which like a, a newly turned vampire starts sucking steaks to uh, stay alive. I feel like that trope has <laughs> shown up, I think, in Habit. And perhaps in Chronos uh, as well. I can't remember. Oh, Chronos, yeah. that's a great one. So yeah, maybe maybe this is an example of my uh, my knowledge of that is based more on fiction than reality. But uh, but either way, humans are, have not been averse to consuming blood throughout history as part of their diet, but not exclusively. Okay? Well, now that leads us to just the, again the idea of medicinal consumption of blood, occasional consumption of blood as part of some actual treatment of malady or illness or just some sort of a, a ritualistic uh, practice. And uh, there are a number of cool examples of this. Uh, drawing uh, most of these examples from two different sources here, there's an excellent article by uh, Maria Dolan from Smithsonian Magazine titled The Gruesome History of Eating Corpses as Medicine. And, of course, that goes into a lot more than just blood consumption but also flesh consumption. It's a great article. I'll include a link to it on the landing page for this episode. And there's also another great article, Young Blood by Jess Zimmerman, uh, writing for uh, Ian Magazine. I really liked both of these articles, too. They, yeah, they were great stuff. reads. But, yeah, so some of the facts, uh, according to a description by Pliny the Elder, who is a Roman historian, oh, yeah. uh, apparently Romans loved to drink the blood of gladiators who were killed in the arena in ancient Rome. So you'd have people down there fighting it out. I guess one of them gets skewered with one of those little pokey-pokey Roman swords. Uh The blood starts to come out, and people just be like, give me some. Don't count out the trident, dude. I always (laughs) like the trident and that guy, um, to whatever extent that was actually a a thing and not just an artistic motif. But I I was always rooting for him because he had more of the uphill battle. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. I would drink his blood because clearly he's he's a, he's that's strong, smart, he's powerful, blood. but he's smart. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I want before I go into podcast. Again, I'm not sure exactly where this falls on that scale I talked about earlier. Like the uh, the the sort of secular, this is some kind of material nutrition thinking to the magical. I'm gaining the power and essence of the gladiator thinking. I'd imagine this falls more to the magical side, right? 
Yeah, I would think so. Um, and it, it seems like it, uh, based on what I was reading, it may have uh, its roots in uh, Etruscan funeral rites. So it may go beyond just uh, you know the mere mere bloodthirsty aspect of the culture at the time. And I've also read there's a 2003 paper titled "Between Horror and Hope: Gladiators' Blood as a Cure for." Uh, uh, Epileptics in Ancient Medicine, and this was published in the Journal of Historical Neuroscience. And uh, this article posited that uh, spontaneous recovery from some forms of epilepsy may be responsible for the illusion of therapeutic effectiveness uh, from drinking the blood of a gladiator. So it's one of those things where it seemed to work enough of the time, so why not? Because it's also it's just it's just good fun. It's just part of the part of going out on the town and enjoying a good gladiatorial <laughs> contest. Well, yeah, the false cure working by this method, I think, was a common feature of ancient medicine. Mm-hmm. You, you always read about these types of medicines that that ancient people thought would be effective at curing X, Y, or Z. When we now know, it, you know, this has no effect at all. Why do people think this? What might have happened really often is that it somebody took some of this. In an unrelated way, they just got better, and it's like, look, it worked. Right, or they might have received a placebo effect boost from from obtaining it. Yeah. And then likewise, since uh, either they had to pay a certain amount to obtain this gladiator blood, or it was such a big deal to get it, that you end up um, tweaking your memories yeah. enough to where, of course, it was the gladiator blood. I didn't drink the blood <laughs> of, a, of a dead slave and not benefit from it. Right. What kind of monster do you think I am? No, no, no. That, that makes sense too, because we, you know, we go through all kinds of mental justification to justify mm-hmm. things that were difficult to get. So if you spend a lot of money on yeah. uh, on an appliance or a piece of furniture, you end up coming up with ways of thinking this was a good investment. I, the same could be true of some gladiator blood. I'm I'm quite sure. Yeah. So we we see this trend throughout history, and we're going to roll through some of the examples and. Some of these you're going to get into a very alleged territory uh, because it's a popular motif as well to slander your enemy by saying they drink human blood. Yeah, uh, quite common, in fact. Mm-hmm. Like, so one example would be uh, Pope Innocent VIII, who died in 1492, mm-hmm. and the the story is that he was one of the first people to receive an attempted blood transfusion. But I think the stories seem to be all over the place. It's like uh, some say that he got blood from willing donors, or that he drank the blood of Jewish children, or yeah, um, yeah, sort of a re- reverse of the the blood libel often uh, leveled against Jews in medieval times, saying that they're 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 drinking the blood of, uh, of of Gentile children or processing it into some sort of a baked good. Yeah, so uh, so obviously that was not true with uh, Pope Innocent VIII. I'd say grain of salt there. Yeah, yeah, and not just as a to, to flavor the blood of the young boy. No, no, no. Drinking, but but obviously the idea there was that while well, you had an ailing, dying pope, maybe giving them the blood of someone younger could help stave off death. Right. Yeah. And then of course you have various um, minds that are uh, that are chiming in on this. Fifteenth-century philosopher uh, Marsilio Ficino suggested drinking blood from the arm of a young person uh, might uh, give you a health boost. So. So you have that to uh, to to boost your uh, to encourage you to try it. Wait, so I assume a still living young person. Um, Can well, you, you know they're young people, so <laughs> unless you're just you're lucky and they're not, uh, you're probably gaining it from a young person. Also, you know they're young people; they don't have a lot of money. Maybe they they want to make a few bucks on the side by draining a little blood off into uh, in, into a little. Uh, a uh, little glass for a little goblet for elderly members of the uh, society. I find the arm specification here kind of funny. Like, is that just a an accident of said? Well, the easiest place to get it is from the arm. Or did the arm matter to him? Was it like <laughs> now if you drink it from their uh, from their butt cheek, you're not going to get the same restorative power? Well, he must be referring to to obtaining it from a young, probably willing person here, yeah. and then they're not draining them whole. Because, yeah, the arm is un- far enough away from your center of being. It's it's, it's not close to anything that's uh, uh, too uh, important. So, yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, up through the Renaissance, you, you still had all these beliefs that consuming the flesh or the blood of humans in various ways could cure all kinds of diseases, right? 
Oh, yeah, yeah. 16th and 17th century, you had many Europeans, uh, including royalty, priests, even scientists of the day that are that are trying remedies that are made from human bone, from fat, or from blood uh, in order to treat everything from headache to epilepsy. And despite some of the science we're going to get into later in this episode, I think we can assume that probably none of that actually worked. Yeah. Um, let's see some other points here. A 16th century Italian alchemist uh, recommended uh, taking children under the age of 13, shutting them in a well-enclosed room, siphoning out the air, uh, which would be, quote, filled with the breath and expired substance of these five young virgins uh-huh. and therefore have curative powers. But again, this is an alchemist. Uh, so, yeah, again, grain of salt. And of course, through all these different rituals that come up, the blood needs to be fresh. It needs oh, to, yeah. It needs, it's not just a matter of finding a dead body and draining it. Like the, the body needs, either needs to be still alive or very, uh, very, very quickly exterminated. So there you can think of the, the gladiatorial arena, of course. Mm-hmm. So you've got somebody killed right there in front of you. So you know it's fresh. Right. And, or, or you could go to the other route, or the less valorous route and stand around waiting for a prisoner to be executed. Ah, yes. And here we see this uh, this tradition of the of the gladiator's blood being carried on really into to fairly uh, recent times. Um, I was uh, reading uh, one of the sources here. Uh, that article by Maria Dolan of Smithsonian said that in in 1908 we saw the last known attempt uh, made in Germany to swallow blood from a uh, an executed uh, criminal at the scaffold uh, because for for a long time. Apparently, this was the thing. You would go to an execution and you drop a few coins for a cup of still warm blood from the executed. Because the executioner, he's kind of a, a magical boundary walker, right? Between uh-huh. life and death, between accepted society and uh, the outside. Often he's wearing a hood, right? And so this is where, where you can go to him. He's a master of life and death, so he can give you some of the, the juice of life and death. Um, and again, there are no more gladiatorial contests. This is your best bet at getting a young uh, person's blood, because uh, because that's the best kind. You got to get the the young virgin or the young man's the the virile young blood. That's yeah. where the magic is. Yeah, and along those lines, I think sometimes people recommended trying to get blood from people who were still alive. I guess like we were talking about it was probably meant by the arm of the young person earlier. But uh, people like Paracelsus were were suggesting that you should should drink fresh blood, right? Yeah, 16th century German Swiss uh, physician, general Renaissance man, you know, just yeah. had his hands in everything. Great uh, Renaissance weirdo. Yeah, <laughs> and he believed, yeah, the blood was probably good for drinking, and it was one of his followers that took this even further by suggesting that you take blood from a living body. Mm. And again, there there there's a tradition here of of learned men at least contemplating the prospect. Leonardo da Vinci said, We preserve our life with the death of others. In a dead thing, insensate life remains, which, when it is reunited with the stomachs of the living, regains sensitive and intellectual life. Well, that's an interesting take on digestion. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the sources are there. You have some, you have, you have learned men who are talking about the potential benefits of drinking blood. You have rituals and rites throughout history. So, it continues to seem to make a certain amount of sense. Of course, if freshness isn't quite so necessary to you, you could probably just work it into some various recipes, right? You could make a marmalade out of it. Yeah, apparently there was a Franciscan apothecary recipe from 1679 for a, a, a human blood-based marmalade. Um, and as this, as we end, we end up eventually sort of transferring out of this as as. As medical science advances, suddenly the the idea becomes more about tissue. I mean, we're keeping the basic idea of absorbing the essence of some other more vital person's body intact, but we're just switching from blood to, well, maybe we need to implant some testicles. Yeah, yeah, you see this uh, in the 1890s in Paris. Um, Charles uh, Edouard Brown Sequard uh, was a a champion of testes implantation. Sergei Voronov uh, would physically remove healthy testicles from young animals and implant the glands into patients. So, you know, the thing is, like, the, the, they're they're off base here, but it's it's <laughs> forecasting like real science to come and real uh, usable principles of of tissue and organ transplant sometimes between species. Yeah, and of course, blood transfusions are an essential part of modern medical science. I mean, yeah, it's not so much that you. 
absorb the blood of the young to gain the power of the gladiator. But if you are ailing, if if you have a blood deficiency, you need blood for some reason. Yeah, of course you can get a blood donation from someone. Yeah, I mean to fall back on the the biomechanical automobile example, it's like it's not so much that. It, you know, say what you will about old oil and new oil. The machine needs oil to run. And if there's yeah. oil leaking out, you've got to add some more, obviously. So it's the difference between uh, you wouldn't try to steal the oil from a sports car to gain the vitality of the sports car. You just need oil from somewhere. It right. can come from wherever. And so in this, we end up working back up to our modern age, to our very modern age, as in studies that have come out this year, the last few years, where we again see this motif reemerge that you could take young blood, specifically young blood, into your older body and benefit from it, both physically and mentally. So we've talked about the the mythology, the magical thinking of absorbing the powerful essence of a strong, young, vigorous, uh, vital person by claiming their blood and making it your own. But there is some actual science that runs bizarrely close to this magical tradition. And this science has been in development for a long time. I think it, it's been sort of brewing for more than a century mm-hmm. uh, based on some old techniques. But it's only in the past decade or maybe a little more than that that people have really started to catch on to exactly how potent this type of therapy could be. Yeah, really to the point now where it's it's very promising. Yeah, uh, and we don't know yet what all of the implications are going to be, but let's get into the details of why you would take the blood of the young and give it to the old in a medical context. Yeah, in one of the there are a couple of big studies here that uh, that, that we're, we're drawing from. Uh, one of them was a 2014 Stanford University Medical Center study, uh, and, and these these efforts, of course, involved prior studies and continuing studies. So yeah. this is very much a it's, it's a network of findings. Yeah, it's not just like a one off <laughs> by any means. Yeah, so it had already been uh, before this one particular study. It had already been established that uh, there was some indication that. Some regions of the brains of old mice, when given the blood of young mice, would produce more nerve cells. And so obviously that's a good thing. But unfortunately, the reverse also held true. So when you gave young mice uh, exposure to the blood of old mice, they suffered for it. They had decreased health outcomes, we might say. Right. So this time the researchers checked both for changes within nerve circuits and individual nerve cells. Uh in order to uh, to demonstrate improvements in learning and memory. So first they examined uh, pairs of mice whose circulatory systems had been surgically conjoined. And this is a process we've been we've been doing for a while um, uh, uh, a, a process known as parabiosis. Yeah, we actually talked about this process uh, on an episode of Forward Thinking that I recorded with my co-hosts on that show last year. But parabiosis is a very interesting, creepy, weird procedure that that really gives a lot of people the willies, but it has led to some very interesting and promising medical outcomes, so I think it's really worth talking about. So in this case, parabiosis, it it comes from the words meaning sort of beside life, so side-to-side life, essentially. And it refers to taking a patch of skin off of two mice and then sewing the mice together. Okay. So basically like hooking up the plumbing, uh, the, the circulatory plumbing. Yeah, so you're creating a common circulatory system and causing the two mice to share a bloodstream and the blood becomes one common pool. They're parabiotic. Uh, and the process... collaboration, really. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They're working together. They're, they're getting closer. So this was a process that was described by a French physiologist named Paul Bert. It's spelled like Bert. I believe in French that'd be Bert. I apologize if I'm wrong about that. Uh, in, in the 1860s, I think 1864. And then later in the 1930s, the process was improved upon by a pair of people named Bunster and Meyer. But essentially, it entails taking two mice side by side and attaching them at parallel elbows and knees and then sewing together an exposed patch of skin along the sides. 
And of course, then the natural mammalian healing process kicks in. The, the sides attach together. They, they fuse. The skin joins and the capillaries connect. And then the mice can share this blood system. And then apparently after some length of time, the pair can be separated again if necessary for the experiment. So that's the parabiosis. But what is heterochronic parabiosis? Cause that's what they were really practicing here. Heterochronic would mean mixed time, right? Mixed time scales. So when you're creating parabiotic mice that are heterochronic, that means one old mouse and one young mouse. And this is where the, the fun comes in, because apparently when you join one old mouse and one young mouse, you get startling results. In the 1950s, there was a guy at Cornell named Clive McKay, and McKay performed experiments on uh, parabiasis, it, essentially trying to learn what he could about how to prolong lifespan. Can, can you take mammals and make them live longer by sharing blood in this way? And what they found was that the old mice who got paired up, who got sewn together with a young mouse, showed rejuvenated cartilage, meaning that the cartilaginous tissue in their body actually appeared younger. Uh, and more recently, this line of research was picked up on by a researcher named Thomas A. Rando, uh, who conti- continued this and published a study in Nature in 2005. And this showed that if you took two of these mice and you sewed them together, one old mouse and one young mouse, and you left them that way for five weeks, eventually the older mice showed improved rates of muscle healing and liver cell regeneration. So that's very interesting. And promising. I read a Nature News piece about this line of research that had a very funny part where it said, quote, after the team published its results, Rando's phone started ringing incessantly. Some of the calls were from men's health magazines looking for ways to build muscle. Others were from people fascinated by the idea of forestalling death. They wanted to know whether young blood extended lifespan. So already <laughs> the the vultures who don't want to die and don't want to grow old are starting to pounce. Thinking, could I find a young person without any limbs and just kind of sew them onto my back like a living, <laughs> uh, rejuvenating backpack? Yeah. You'd, you'd become Master Blaster <laughs> from uh, from Thunderdome, except it, it'd be you. I guess you'd be Blaster, and then you'd have <laughs> a master on your back who is actually your blood slave. Yeah, stitch on a millennial and, and hit the clubs, right? But anyway, that's all of the heterochronic parabiasis, and that sort of brings us back up into the research of the more recent years, including this 2014 study. Yeah, in this study, the hippocampus was really key. Now, this is the part of the brain that's critical for forming certain types of memories, notably uh, used in recollection and recognition of, of spatial patterns. Experience physically alters it, and um, and various, quote, detrimental anatomical and functional changes occur there as an individual ages. Yeah, so as you get older, you're, this part of your brain, I think the brain in general, but especially this part of your brain sees decline. Right, and it's also, uh, like, one of the examples is often thrown out, and I think this has come up on the podcast before, you have London cabbies who have who actually have uh, have larger hippocampuses uh, due to the uh, you know all the, the their knowledge, their physical knowledge of the right. city, the which I knowledge. believe they call the not yeah the yeah. knowledge. Um, <laughs> it's like they're an order of warlocks. Yeah. Uh, so they are. They are kind, the knowledge. Of, kind of warlocks of their own kind. Um, but in old mice with new blood, they quote found consistent differences in a number of biochemical, anatomical, and electrophysiological measures known to be important to nerve cell circuits encoding of new experiences for retention in the cerebral cortex. So essentially what's happening here is the, uh, uh, the hippocampi of older mice resemble that of younger mice. They made uh, greater amounts of uh, various substances that hippocampal cells are known to produce when learning is taking place. So we see not only a, a tissue boost here, but an actual mental boost. Like it's, it's recharging the hippocampus, recharging the mind of the young mouse. They also found that uh, hippocampal nerve cells from older mem- members of these uh, these old young uh, parabiotic pairs uh, were sh- uh, uh, also showed an enhanced ability to strengthen the connections between one nerve cell and another, which again is essential to learning and forming new memories. Right, forging those internal pathways in the mind. Right. And older mice uh, infused with young blood also did better on food hunting tests, such as one in particular where they would have a food platform that's submerged in a water-filled container. Oh, okay. So in this study, 
they're not just looking at the the anatomical information. They're not just saying, hey, wh- you know, what is the number of cells we can find in this part of the brain? But they're actually testing behavior, yeah, how, how it behavior. works in the field. Yeah, indeed. They also found they perform better in freeze tests. Now, this is where mice are trained to freeze in fear when plunked into a particular environment. And while old mice usually perform worse than the young, freezing for shorter periods of time, betraying a, a lack of recognition. So, in other words, you've been trained to fear this environment. And if you, the, the faster you recognize it and freeze in fear, the longer you're frozen, that shows that you're 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 recalling it. Yeah, but uh, older mice get desensitized to this. They don't recognize their conditions as quickly. Cor- correct. Uh, but when they have that uh, that rejuvenating uh, influx of young blood, they perform better on the freeze test. Yeah, but th- this kind of thing makes you wonder: what is it about the blood? Because surely it's not it's not a magical essence. It's right. not the gladiator's strength being carried through the magical properties of the blood. But it must be some kind of material that's in the blood that's doing this work of rejuvenation in the older mouse's brain. So it would be interesting to see if we could narrow down what it is in the blood that's causing this change. And one of the interesting things that uh, you mentioned in a note about this is that apparently it didn't work if you heated up the blood plasma, right? Yeah, so what apparently happens when you heat up the blood is that it denatures or breaks apart key proteins. And so there could be some blood-borne proteins that we've yet to identify and exploit that are, are central to this, uh, this, this taking place. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, another study has, I think, identified what they think are at least one of the key proteins. That's right, a series of recent Harvard studies. Uh, and these are, are also using the, uh, the stitched-together old-young mouse uh, uh, pairs. And uh, this research, headed by stem cell researcher uh, Amy Wagers, isolated a specific protein from mouse blood, growth differentiation factor 11, or GDF11. Uh, and this seems to re- regulate stem cell activity, and it's abundant in young mice, but its level drops as the animals age. Right. So if you look at blood from a young mouse, it's got plenty of GDF-11. You look at blood from an old mouse, it has a lot less. So this would seem to be something that you could be resupplying to older mice by giving them the blood plasma of uh, younger mice. Yeah, and indeed they found that injections of GDF-11 can reduce the thickening of the heart. Uh, that typically comes with aging in mice. They've also found that GDF-11 works nearly as well as parabiosis in helping aging mice recover from uh, muscle injuries, and it boosts their performance on running and grip strength tests. Grip strength, huh? Yeah, grip strength. Little mouse uh, squeezies, I guess, yeah. (laughs) So you wouldn't just be like a mentally rejuvenated mouse in a a weak, decrepit body. Like, it can actually give you some, some juice back, too. So along with the Easter Island fungal agent uh, rapamycin, uh, also known as rapamune by Pfizer, uh, along with that and, cal- and uh, caloric restriction, uh, this is one of only three uh, interventions shown to reverse aging in multiple tissues. So it's pretty pretty big. Yeah, but we do also want to show caution here and say that it hasn't yet been successfully demonstrated in humans. Right. And that... Most of the researchers who who are trying to explain this to the public, they they always want to emphasize that this isn't necessarily like an a way to cheat death. Right. It hasn't been shown to prolong life unnaturally. I mean, it might if uh, if the data sh- turns up, but it hasn't been shown to do that yet. Instead, it's talking about showing renewed capacity in certain tissues in older organisms. Yeah, so the more likely use of this technology, this uh, this uh, procedure would be for the treatment of Alzheimer's disease, the treatment of heart disease, as opposed to some sort of futuristic, slightly morbid uh, longevity treatment for the rich and privileged. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of the other caveats that are thrown out there is uh, the old mice that are used in many of these experiments are essentially middle-aged mice, and we're not sure what the effects would be if they would be less pronounced with truly old mice or, indeed, with truly old humans. But the cool thing is that uh, since uh, since bl- blood transfusions are routinely given to patients, uh Trials like this would not be uh, would not have to have um, 
authorization from the U.S. Uh, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, so researchers can test this out in humans sooner rather than later. Now, of course, if they're testing this on humans, we're not talking about parabiosis. Of course, not at all. <laughs> they wouldn't be. Uh, so, well, I mean, who knows? I really don't think they would ever be thinking about sewing two humans together, sewing you together with your grandpa to see if it <laughs> if it makes him healthier and you less healthy. And another way that this would not be used is drinking blood. Because right. that's not what we're talking about. In fact, there was a funny way. I, I mentioned this in the Forward Thinking podcast, but there was a new scientist article that interviewed a guy named Tony Wiscore, who was one of the people working on this subject. And they got a quote from him where he's like, certainly you can't drink the blood. <laughs> Although, obviously, we haven't tried that experiment. <laughs> <laughs> so I... I don't know if he was trying to say, you know, maybe you could drink the blood, but I don't think so. I don't think drinking the blood will do it. It seems like it, it's uh, involving the direct transfusion of the plasma, especially that uh, GDF11, the growth, growth differentiation factor 11, and then maybe some other elements in the blood or the plasma. Yeah, I mean, it has to be circulatory to circulatory, not circulatory to uh, gastrointestinal. It's, yeah. That doesn't make sense. It's uh, like hooking your electricity up to your your plumbing system. But speaking of Tony Wiscore, there is uh, apparently under this particular researcher an ongoing project that's studying the effect on human Alzheimer's patients. Hmm. And I, I think this is very interesting. The, the last public update I found about this was a, a Nature News article from January 2015, so earlier this year, saying that the, the experiment had started in September 2014, and it was a randomized, placebo-controlled, double-blind trial uh, testing the safety and efficacy of using young plasma to treat Alzheimer's disease. Uh, that, that was what they said. And then they said that six out of 18 people who had originally been planned for the experiment, who were all older than 50, had already started receiving the treatment. So they'd already been getting plasma that came from people who were below the age of 30. And so uh, we haven't seen the results of this yet, but I think it's going to be really, really interesting to see how this experiment turns out. Yeah, I mean, when you you sort of cut away all of the, the mythic ghastliness that, that is built up with the idea of reusing human blood or consuming it or, or the old growing strong on the blood of the young. There's a lot of, there are a lot of wonderful uh, possibilities here for the treatment of, uh, of conditions like Alzheimer's and heart disease. Yeah, certainly. Uh, though then again, on the other side, there have been other researchers who have been quick to warn that there would be limits to even this type of procedure. Like let's, say that the results on the study come back and they say, whoa, giving older people, younger people's blood has amazing effects, even in humans. Mm -hmm. And it's been shown in this double blind placebo controlled trial. Uh, so we've got a real, very important phenomenon on our hands. Even then, you might want to show some caution because there was a quote given to that Nature News piece I was talking about uh, from 2015 from that that same researcher that I talked about earlier, Thomas A. Rando. And he said that this could result in too much cell division. He said, my suspicion is that chronic treatments with anything, plasma drugs, that rejuvenate cells in old animals is going to lead to an increase in cancer. Hmm. Uh, even if we learn how to make cells young, it's something we'll want to do judiciously. And that makes a lot of sense to me. So if you've got a problem, which is that there's not enough cell division and cell growth in the body because you've gotten old, if you want to fix it by spurring lots of cell division and cell growth, that is what leads to cancer. Hmm. You, you, it's it's the balance of life, I guess. Yeah, but then again, I can easily imagine a scenario where, again, this is just speculating, where an older individual has to make that choice. They're like, "Well, I could certainly, I can certainly afford to um, hook this young person up to me, get some <laughs> of their blood." And I'm going to be a little sharper. My tissue's going to improve. I'm going to feel a little younger, but I'm also going to be more prone to cancer. Right. You know, we're humans. We're we really suck at weighing uh, short term versus long term. Right. So I can I can see them saying, you know what? I'm going to feel young this week, and I'll worry about cancer next week. I guess you could always go back and forth, right? You could get maybe say in the future we get really really good at treating cancer. Mm -hmm. So people are taking way too many stem cells or blood transfusions from the young. Uh, getting this rejuvenated effect, but then also getting cancer. And then they're just using our strongest cancer-fighting methods to fight off the cancer. 
faster and in time to get some more rejuvenating juice from the young. I, I think that these scenarios, I, as fun as they are to imagine, somehow I don't think it's quite going to work out that way because I, I don't want this to be the case, but what I suspect is that we will see some result from this, but it'll be kind of modest. Yeah. You know? But again, you combine that with magical thinking, you combine that with placebo effect, you combine that with kind of a desperate willingness to try something. I'm, I'm pretty confident you're going to have some older, well-off individual who is <laughs> going to make this happen for himself or yeah. herself. Uh, one last thing I think we should say again before the end of this episode is, unfortunately, if you are reading anything about this research that up to this point has said that blood or plasma from the young will make you live forever or unnaturally extend your lifespan, so far that is not true. That has not been shown in any experiment that, that we could find evidence mm-hmm. of. So for now, that ain't the case. Right. Unfortunately. <laughs> All right, so there you have it. A little of the the history, the science and mythology of old people drinking young people's blood, old people taking young blood into themselves, essentially the curative properties of young blood. My main takeaway from this is I want to drink whatever substance it is that will help me look like Gary Oldman does at the beginning of Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. <laughs> you mean the old bun-haired? Or the bun-haired about, one. Okay, not yeah. the, the young flashback uh, version with the with the cool armor. Oh, yeah, well, either way would be great. But, I mean, <laughs> see, if you're Gary Oldman's Dracula, you look great when you're young and vital, and mm-hmm. you look great as an old, decrepit bun-hair. Either way, you're awesome. So, but also you're kind of saying, as an old person, I want to look like, have that distinct look of a young actor that's been made up to look like an old man. Sort of like the, 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 the Prometheus, uh, yeah. uh version of, uh, what's his face, right? Oh, oh um, no, Guy Pierce yeah, and Guy Prometheus. Pierce that's the worst makeup <laughs> job I've ever seen in film. No, Gary Oldman in, in Coppola's Dracula is much better. Our ways are not your ways. <laughs> Our ways are not your ways. This is a good place to leave off with this one. So, hey, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, again, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find blog posts, galleries, uh, top ten lists, all the podcast episodes we've ever put together, various videos, and links out to our social media accounts. And if you want to get in touch with us with your thoughts about the consumption of human blood, you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 